You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 432 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, by the end of the last show, we'd set the stage for another dramatic event in the battles for Chattanooga, the storming of Missionary Ridge by the Yankees on November 25th, 1863. The previous day, the 24th, Hooker's Federals had captured Lookout Mountain in a remarkable action that came to be called the Battle Above the Clouds. The imposing mass of Lookout loomed over Chattanooga to the southwest of the town, but while its capture by Hooker was undeniably dramatic, the key to the Confederate position was actually Missionary Ridge, which dominated Chattanooga to the east. That's because behind Missionary Ridge was the railhead at Chickamauga Station on the Western and Atlantic Railroad, which was the Confederates' lifeline to Atlanta to the south. The Western and Atlantic was Braxton Bragg's line of communication and supply, and, if it came to it, would be his line of retreat, away from Chattanooga and down into northwest Georgia. In formulating a plan to crack the rebel position and once and for all in the deadlock at Chattanooga, Ulysses S. Grant had always intended that his main blow would land against the north end of Missionary Ridge and would be made by his favorite lieutenant, William Tecumseh Sherman. But as we talked about in that last episode, Sherman had run into a spot of trouble on the 25th at a place called Tunnel Hill, where Confederate Division Commander Patrick Claiborne stopped him cold. With Sherman's attack stalled at Tunnel Hill at the north end of Missionary Ridge on the Confederate right, Grant's plan suffered another setback when his strike against Rossville Gap to the south on the Confederate left ran into trouble when Hooker's advance was delayed for hours after Fighting Joe reached Chattanooga Creek and discovered that the rebels had burned the bridge there. Ulysses S. Grant had grown increasingly frustrated as the day wore on. Sherman's attack on the north end of Missionary Ridge was late getting started and then appeared to be making little headway. To the south, Hooker's movement against the Confederate left was also stalled, while a new bridge was built across Chattanooga Creek. Grant, along with George Thomas, was positioned on Orchard Knob, the hundred-foot hill that stood almost alone 
in the otherwise flat ground between Chattanooga and Missionary Ridge. Thomas's troops had seized Orchard Knob two days ago, on the 23rd. About two o'clock on the afternoon of the 25th, Grant was hungry and walked down Orchard Knob's reverse slope for a bite to eat. After having lunch and smoking a cigar, Grant made his way back to the hilltop, having been gone about half an hour. What he saw upon his return shocked him to his core. Visible on the west face of Tunnel Hill were Sherman's men, and although before lunch they had been positioned on the side of the ridge, now they could be seen falling back down the slope in disarray. With Hooker's advance against the rebel left delayed, and Sherman's attack on the enemy right in trouble, and given the amount of daylight remaining on this late November afternoon, Grant immediately realized he had to do something. He turned to Brigadier General Thomas Wood, one of George Thomas's division commanders, and noted that Sherman had run into difficulty, and perhaps something should be done to help him. Every eye on Orchard Knob was turned on General Sherman's operations, keenly watching his movements, and in profoundest sympathy, ardently desiring success to crown his sturdy efforts. But all in vain. Assault after assault was repulsed. About half past 2 p.m., it was plainly and painfully evident to every beholder on Orchard Knob that General Sherman's attack, which, according to the plan of battle, was to be the dominant coup of the battle, had been hopelessly defeated and was an irretrievable failure. It was evident that his further progress toward the crest of the ridge was definitively stopped. It chanced that at the moment of the repulse, General Grant was standing near me. He approached and said, General Sherman seems to be having a hard time. I replied, he does seem to be meeting with rough usage. To this, General Grant said, I think we ought to try to do something to help him. I said, I think so too, General, and whatever you order, we will try to do. General Grant continued, I think if you and Sheridan were to advance your divisions and carry the rifle pits at the base of the ridge, it would so threaten Bragg's center that he would draw enough troops from the right to secure his center to ensure the success of General Sherman's attack. I replied, Perhaps it might work in that way, and if you order it, we will try it, and I think we can carry the entrenchments at the base of the ridge. General Grant walked immediately from me to General Thomas, distant about ten paces. They were in conversation a very short time, perhaps two or three minutes, when General Thomas called General Granger, who stood near to him. After perhaps two minutes' conversation, General Granger came to me and said, you and Sheridan are to advance your divisions, carry the entrenchments at the base of the ridge if you can, and if you succeed, to halt there. He further said, the movement is to be made at once, so give your orders to your brigade commanders immediately, and the signal to advance will be the rapid, successive discharge of the six guns of this battery. I immediately sent for my brigade commanders, Hazen, Willock, and Beatty, repeated to them the orders received from General Granger, and directed them to give the orders to their regimental commanders in person, who, in turn, 
were to give the orders to their company commanders in person. I was thus careful in having the orders transmitted, because I desired commanders of every grade in the division to fully understand what the movement was to be, and that there might be neither misconception nor confusion. Brigadier General Thomas J. Wood, Division Commander, Army of the Cumberland. To the previously idle troops of George Thomas's command, the sudden shouted orders to fall in about 3 p.m. were like an electric shock. Men began to unstack muskets, and regiments soon began to move over the breastworks and come into line out in the open ground facing Missionary Ridge. Orders had come down through each division headquarters, conveyed verbally by staff officers, since the need for haste allowed no time for written orders. The instructions that went out to the various brigades were therefore, in many cases, unclear and imprecise, since the staff officers delivering the verbal orders didn't clearly understand the objective of the attack themselves. Some brigade commanders believed they were to advance across the open ground to the enemy's line of rifle pits and halt there at the base of the ridge. Others were told only to advance. In the rush and confusion, some units failed to get any orders at all. As their men formed up, some officers sought more precise instructions. For example, the lieutenant colonel of the 15th Ohio asked brigade commander August Willick where the regiment should halt once it started its advance. Willick, unsure himself, replied, I don't know. At hell, I expect. Fourth Corps Commander Gordon Granger had remained on Orchard Knob, trusting to his staff officers and others to arrange the details of the movement. Even though his troops made up nearly two-thirds of the force that would make the advance, Granger was focused on making the arrangements for the firing of the six artillery pieces whose firing would signal the start of the assault. According to one source, Grant became so impatient that he strode over to Granger and barked, If you will leave that battery to its captain and take command of your corps, it will be better for all of us. Finally, Granger received word that all units were formed up and in line of battle, ready to advance. At 3.40, he gave the order, and the six cannon fired in quick succession, jolting everyone into action. As they had two days previously when they'd captured Orchard Knob, the men of the Army of the Cumberland now, once again, put on a grand show. Ranged in neat parade ground ranks, some 24,000 men in the four divisions of Absalom Baird, Thomas Wood, Phil Sheridan, and Richard Johnson advanced under waving flags. From the crest of Missionary Ridge and from the rifle pits at the base of the ridge, thousands of Confederates watched in awe as the more than two-mile-long line of Federals started forward. One of the watching Confederates, Sergeant Charles Hemming of the 3rd Florida, later recalled, quote, We looked out on the plain, and with the precision of a dress parade, their magnificent army came into view. The officers, all superbly dressed, pranced out on their high-mettled chargers. The bands played, 
and to the music came the most wonderful array of splendidly equipped soldiers I ever saw. The old flag waved beautifully at the head of each regiment. Heming continued, saying, I loved the old flag dearly when I was a boy, and when the 4th of July came, I had my miniature cannon lined up to salute the flag. When I looked upon it at the head of that wonderful army, I confess that it drew my silent admiration, as I suppose it did of many of our Confederate soldiers. However, we had a duty to perform, and a new flag to serve, so we lay down on the top of the hill, waiting for the coming foe. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Up on the crest of Missionary Ridge, Confederate Brigadier General Alfred Manigo, who thought the federal attackers must number at least 50,000 men, later admitted, quote, The sight was grand and imposing in the extreme. Such a sight I never saw either before or after, and I trust under the same circumstances never to see again. The rebels deployed in the rifle pits at the bottom of the ridge, who had a front row seat to that grand and imposing sight, numbered about 9,000 men, and they shouldn't have been there. You see, that morning, William Hardee, the Confederate commander who was responsible for this part of the rebel lines, was inspecting the rifle pits at the foot of the ridge, along with Division Commander Patton Anderson. As Hardee and Anderson discussed the possibility of a Yankee attack there against the center of Missionary Ridge, Anderson asked what he should do. Should he put up a stiff fight there at the foot of the ridge? 
Or should he have the men there retreat up the slope to the crest? If we rewind the tape two days to the evening of the 23rd, Hardy's instructions at that time were for half of Anderson's division to occupy the crest of Missionary Ridge, while the other half manned the rifle pits at the foot of the ridge. At that time, there were no prepared defenses along the crest, so on the 24th, Hardy assigned an engineer officer to lay out a line. Despite a shortage of tools, Anderson's men felled trees and used them to build up a breastwork. In addition, Hardy ordered all the artillery removed from the lower slopes and repositioned along the crest at various spots. And so, clearly, in the event of a major federal attack, Hardy wanted to fight for Missionary Ridge from the high ground. And so on the morning of the 25th, when Anderson asked for specific instructions, Hardy told him that the troops down below in the rifle pits weren't to stay put and defend against a major assault, but were to retire up the slopes, skirmishing as they went. At the crest, they would join their comrades in the breastworks to defend the top of the ridge. Those new instructions were issued on the morning of the 25th, but as it turned out, once the Federals started to advance that afternoon, there would be no small amount of confusion in the Confederate ranks there at the base of the ridge, since some units didn't get the new orders, and then in the noise and chaos, many men didn't hear the order to withdraw when it was given. They advanced on us in fine style. We held our fire until they were within about 300 yards of us, and then poured a deadly fire into them, and made many of them bite the dust. But we were very few in number, merely a line of skirmishers in a single rank, and scattered at that. I judged from the looks of their numbers that there must be all of 100,000 men. We mowed them down until they were within 30 yards of us, and then we retreated up the hill and made a short stand. But it was no use, and we were again forced to retreat, and then the worst part of the fight, for the hill was dreadful steep, and the enemy kept up a continual fire, and threw a continual shower of bullets among us, and I only wonder they did not kill all of us. Many a poor fellow fell exhausted and was taken prisoner. I did not think that I should be able to reach the top, for I had on a heavy knapsack, and three days' rations in my haversack, and a canteen full of water. I stopped several times and took a shot at the Yankees, and at the same time it rested me. The bullets flew around us so thick that it seemed impossible to escape unhurt. I would have thrown away my knapsack, but could not get it off, and it was lucky for me, for a bullet struck my knapsack at the right shoulder and came out at the left shoulder, making twenty-three holes in my blanket. When I reached the top of the ridge, I was so much exhausted that I fell down and lay there for several minutes to recover my breath. Then I got behind a log and went to work with a will, shooting Yankees. Private Robert Watson, 7th Florida Infantry
From the top of the ridge, Alfred Manigo thought the sight of the 24,000 Federals advancing across the open ground toward the foot of Missionary Ridge, quote, was grand and imposing in the extreme. And as you just heard, Private Watson, there at the base of the ridge, admitted, quote, they advanced on us in fine style. But while all of that sounds grand and cinematic, in reality, as the Yankees drew closer, there was a wild scene of confusion among the Confederates holding the rifle pits at the foot of the ridge, as some rebels promptly departed and started scrambling up the slopes, while others stayed put, not knowing what to do. The Confederates who stayed put were killed or captured, while those who retreated were now forced to scramble 300 to 400 yards up the steep slope to reach the crest, all while under heavy fire. Many rebel soldiers threw away knapsacks, blankets, even their muskets to move faster up the slope. Most of the troops who made the scramble to the crest were, according to one eyewitness, quote, exhausted, demoralized, and unmanageable. Manigo said that after the hurried, stressful climb, many who reached the top were simply, quote, broken down. While those who made the climb were enduring that ordeal, the Confederate infantry and artillerymen atop the ridge were frustrated and dismayed at the unfolding situation. In many spots, the cannon couldn't be fired directly at the Yankees below because their muzzles couldn't be depressed far enough. Even worse, in many instances, the rebel infantry on the crest found they couldn't simply cut loose because of the fear of hitting their own comrades who were scrambling up the slopes. Hardy must have been appalled. He had envisioned an organized, effective defense as the troops below withdrew to the crest where they would join the main line of resistance. But instead, now, all was chaos and confusion. To the advancing ranks of blue-coated Federals, seeing the slopes of Missionary Ridge suddenly filled with fleeing rebels was incredible. Even better, many of the enemy soldiers abandoned their works at the base of the ridge without firing a shot. A lot of Federal units raced swiftly ahead and occupied the mostly empty rifle pits with minimal fighting. Despite Private Watson's recollection that he and his fellow Floridians mowed down the advancing Yankees, it was actually incredibly easy for the Federals. Only later did the Federal soldiers learn about the confusion within the Confederate ranks that had caused their quick and exhilarating victory in capturing the rifle pits at the base of the ridge. At the time, most of the men of the Army of the Cumberland believed the rebels were beaten and fleeing in terror. But now, it was the Federals' turn to become confused about their orders. Were they supposed to stop or continue their attack up the slopes to the crest of the ridge? Apparently, some units believed they were supposed to continue the attack right up the slopes, while other units thought they were supposed to halt at the foot of the ridge. But regardless... The developing situation quickly decided the issue, because as the Yankee soldiers arrived at the foot of the ridge and took possession of the Confederate works, they quickly realized the rifle pits there were no prize, but rather a potential death trap. Because as the Federals halted at the base of the ridge, a new danger quickly made itself known 
in the form of the zip of mini-balls and blasts of canister from the rebel infantry and cannon up on the crest. An officer in a Minnesota regiment later recalled, quote, When we got possession of the first line, we found that it was only knee-high and not protection at all against the musketry and canister that rained down upon us from the crest of the ridge. Whether it was because they thought they were following orders or whether they simply decided to take matters into their own hands, the Federals at the base of the ridge all came to the same conclusion, that they couldn't stay where they were. And so there was nothing for it but to go on, up the slopes before them, all the way to the top of Missionary Ridge. On the afternoon of the 25th, our brigade joined in the assault on the ridge. Our alignment was not very good after we got on the double quick. This explains why no general officers got across that valley to stop us at the rifle pits at the foot of the ridge, because we just ran away from them. I would suppose we traveled at least a mile before reaching the works at the foot of the ridge, most the way on the run, our nerves strung to highest tension. The Johnnies rained their shot and shell down into the valley, and our own batteries in the rear were hurling their shot over our heads at the ridge. We stopped just long enough after taking their first works to catch our breath. Then, without any general orders, commenced to climb the heights, keeping no particular order as we fought our way up. It is a well-known fact that after leaving the works at the foot of the ridge, we went the balance of the way on our own responsibility without any orders except from colonels and captains. It has been said that when Grant asked Thomas, as they stood on Orchard Knob, who gave the order, Thomas said, No one. They just seem to be going up themselves. Private Asbury Welsh, 15th Ohio Infantry, Willicks Brigade, Army of the Cumberland. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Voices of the Civil War, Chattanooga, by the editors of Time Life Books. I think with every major campaign and battle that we cover, we end up recommending this Voices of the Civil War series of books by Time Life. It's where we get a lot of the great quotes that we use in the episodes. Uh, This series is out of print, but the individual titles are still available in all the usual places on the internet where you find used books for sale. And if you do pick them up, they're a wonderful addition to your Civil War bookshelf. You can find a complete list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on how to join the Strawfoot Brigade, just like Russ G., Bernard B., Mark M., and Craig did this past week. We also want to say thanks to James S. for his donation. Yep, thanks everyone. We appreciate your support of the show. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the storming of Missionary Ridge. 
But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.